0: Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. And as they go, I encourage you to open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 7. If you're visiting with us um, or just haven't been here for the last few weeks, we, in Sunday mornings in our Sunday school hour, we have been, in our adult classes, we've been studying through the book of Joshua, and uh, during our morning worship services, we've been taking a look at some of the themes from, from what we've studied in Sunday school. We've been looking at other places in scripture where these themes get developed and these ideas um, uh, bear out, and so we're going to do that this morning. Uh, if you... How many of you were in Sunday school this morning? All right, look at that. Um, You may, in in your classes, you may have uh, dealt with what, to me at least, feels like a really hard passage to read, Um, and we're going to spend a little bit of time just uh, in that, and then we're going to move from there, and today we're going to talk about sin, which is a topic that... uh, you may not enjoy talking about, but it's something that we talk about here um, as a church and that Christians need to, to deal with. And so, uh, Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. We're just going to recap uh, a little bit of this story that we looked at in Sunday School this morning. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. And so, uh, right, right away we want to stop. Uh, right before this is in chapter 6, if you're looking in your Bibles, you see the fall of Jericho. And one of the instructions that God had given to the people when they went and and conquered the city of Jericho was, you are not allowed to keep the treasures of Jericho for yourself. Uh, The treasures of this city are going to be devoted to the Lord and his tabernacle and the worship of God. And so um, all of the gold and silver and all of the the treasures that normally an army would take as their their loot from, from a war, God says, these do not belong to you. These things are devoted to me. And so we begin in verse 1, the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. The story continues that the men went up uh, the the next city that they were going to conquer. They looked and they said, this is going to be easy, we can conquer this. But instead they go out and they fight and they lose the battle. And we're told in verse 5 that because of this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. So here's, this is the context, and this is really our jumping off point. Here's the story that we looked at this morning. Um, Israel was told, keep, don't keep any of the devoted things for yourself. And one man, Achan, chooses to break that instruction. And because of that, the nation is held accountable for the sin of the one man. Uh, and as we begin this conversation about... Sin. I want us to start with a couple uh, couple thoughts that are really important for us as Christians to bear in mind as we have a conversation about sin. And so, first, I want to invite you to turn back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter one. When we have a conversation about sin, it's really important for us as a church to understand that that when it comes to sin, uh, the first move, the first response to sin is not ours, but it's God's. And we'll see in just a second that the first move that God makes when it comes to sin is always grace. And we, when we have a conversation about sin, it's important that when we think about sin in our own lives and, and confronting the sin that we have, when we think about the sin of, of our community as a church and the sins of, of our brothers and sisters when we think about the sins of other people, that we hear that the first word of sin in response to sin is always God's grace. Uh, let's Actually, let's have a word of prayer before we continue any further. God, as we are opening your word this morning, we, we ask that you will open our hearts to the things that you have to teach us. Uh, may we hear uh, your words to us. Father, if, if you know where we, each one of us as individuals is coming and where we as a body are coming uh, this morning, and, and if the words that we need to hear are words of comfort, we ask that you give us comfort uh, for those that need challenge and rebuke. Uh, we pray that uh, you will allow that to be heard as well. We pray this in your name. Amen. So in Genesis chapter 1, God creates. God creates. God creates the world and we're told uh, again and again as God is creating, uh, the Lord saw what he created and it was good. The Lord saw what he he had created and it was good. And so we come to the end of chapter 1, verse 31, and we're told God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So we begin with this world of creation that God has made, and he looks at all that he has made, and, it, and it's very good. We see this, uh, that, that God then in chapter 2, verse 9, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. And so, as God has made creation, he's declared all that he has made is very good, he takes the man and eventually the woman, puts them in the garden and he says, You may eat of any tree, especially here the tree of life, this, this life-giving tree, the only tree that you may not eat of is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you may be familiar with the story, but chapter 3, uh, the man and the woman both eat of the tree that they are not supposed to eat of. And God had said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Uh, the Satan, uh, the serpent has come and said, you're not going to die, but they, they eat, and and sure enough, death enters the world. Um, But as, and so sin now, as, as the man and the woman have eaten, they are now separated from God. They're in this state where, where no longer can they uh, walk with God in the cool of the day as they had once done. They're, they're banished from the garden. But before that, before any words are spoken to the man or the woman about the consequences of their sin, we have this in verse 15. Uh, this, this, These words of God to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Uh, most theologians take a look at this verse here in, in Genesis chapter 3.15. Before any word is spoken of the consequences of the man or the woman's sin, God says to the serpent, uh, the woman's descendant will come and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Most theologians see this as the first gospel, uh, the Proto-Evangelion. This idea that, that God here is speaking of a descendant of the man who will come and do away with the work that the serpent has introduced into the garden. And the, he, he will destroy the work of the deceiver and, and bring about life for the man and the woman again. And so before God moves to the consequences for the woman, to the consequences for the man, we begin even first with a message of grace. That God is already, before he he gives the consequences, he says, uh, I'm already working on a solution. It's already getting taken care of. Uh, Paul uh, talks about this as well. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. In the New Testament, uh, Paul is writing to uh, one one of the first apostles, one of the first missionaries. So we think about our missions conference coming up, Paul has been traveling around uh, starting churches, teaching, uh, setting up leaders for churches, and he's writing this letter to this church in the city of Ephesus. And he says very similar things that that I want us again to have in our minds that the first move of God is grace. Chapter two, Ephesians chapter two, verse one. As for you, You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So he's saying, you in your sins, death entered our world, and you were dead in your sins. This This was your state. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we are dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus as we hear this message and this, this discussion about sin, again we see Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, you were dead in your sins. And he doesn't say, and then when you, when you put a few of the pieces of the puzzle together and you started living rightly and you, and you got rid of this sin in your life and you started to turn your life around a little bit, then God, who is rich in mercy because of his love for us, saved us. But no, the first move of God is while we were dead in our sins, God comes to us with forgiveness and grace. And so, again, as we begin this conversation about sin, uh, we need to have this in mind. And we, as we think about the sins of, of others, uh, and we'll get to this in a second, um, that, that we need to understand and we need to have an operating mentality as a church that the first word of God is not judgment, but it's grace. And a call for repentance. Uh, and then uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's easy when we, when we have a conversation like this and we, and we start thinking about sin. Um, it's easy to be thinking about all of the people that we know need to hear a message like this right (laughs) oh yeah i you know this person i know is or or those people out there those sinners out there um but but paul says in first timothy he says christ jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom i am the worst here you have a, a man who has been establishing churches doing this work for for decades and yet he can still come to a place where he says i am a sinner in need of in need of the grace of god it's not about those people out there but it's about me and so uh the second thing that we need to have in mind is when we think about sin uh, this is not someone else's issue but it's our own Uh, this is not something that we think of those those pagans those people who aren't christians that need to deal with sin uh we need to first have uh, the mirror turned on us and say what what is this saying to me? What is the sin that is still reigning in my life? And so, in First Corinthians 5, verse 9, Paul is writing this letter to this church in Corinth, and there's uh, all kinds of, of issues going on in this church that um, that uh, Cameron will be talking about tonight a little bit. Um, for those of you, just uh, as a little aside, Cameron Beefus is, has, is our intern for the summer, and he's going to be teaching our Sunday evening service tonight. So... If you want a chance to hear Cameron speak, come at six o'clock and you can pepper him with all your questions or ask him how to pronounce Protestant. Um, uh, Anyway, sorry. Uh, First Corinthians five, starting in verse nine, Paul is referencing a previous letter that he wrote. Um, Says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and the swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone, with any who claim to be fellow believers, but are sexually immoral, or greedy, idolaters, slanders, drunkards, or swindlers. With such persons do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. And so as we, as we have this conversation again about sin, uh, we're not talking about those outside the church and what they need to do in response to, to sin. There are moments for that and there are times for that. Uh, obviously, God calls all people to repentance. Uh, but I want us to frame this conversation really around uh, our own sins. As as a church, Paul says, uh, if if you were to separate yourselves from all the people in the world who sin, then you'd have to leave the world. What you need to deal with is the sins that exist within your own community, within your own people. And so, as we have this conversation, first of all, we need to hear the words of grace. But first, secondly, we need to hear that this is a conversation not about them, but it's about us. Now that I have that long introduction, uh, let's dive in. Um, there are a number of ways to approach a conversation about sin. And and we see this the sin that existed in, in uh, Joshua chapter 7. But I want us to turn... We looked at the beginning of Scripture in Genesis. I want us to turn to the very end of Scripture. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. And I want us to have... Uh, not so much a, a conversation about specific sins in our own lives. I think you can do that self-reflection yourself, uh, but I want us to to have a framework of of why is this such a big deal that we have to have that we have to deal with the sins that are in our own lives, and why is it important for us to do the work? To say, yes, I'm saved by grace and I've, and I've received Christ and my sins are forgiven. But there are still sins that I continue to do and even though they're forgiven, uh, I shouldn't continue to just do them saying, hey, like Paul says in Romans, well, should we sin so that God's grace can abound more and more? By no means. What, why do we have to still make a, deal, make a big deal about sin in our lives? And I want to do this by framing this uh, in, in where the story of Scripture is headed. Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 3. Here we have this, this final picture of God's redeeming work, and he says, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. As clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. So we have here this picture of, of of God's final redeeming work. And we're told in chapter 21 that that no longer will will the effects of sin be reigning in the new heavens and the new earth. The old order of things have, have passed away. There's going to be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. These are things that were introduced into our world because of sin. And it's sin in our world that brings about even today Death and mourning and crying and pain. And then we're given this final picture of the tree of life. Once again, chapter 22. So we begin back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And God creates and it is good. And there's no sin and there's no death or mourning or pain. And there's a tree of life that's giving life to the nations, to the people. And we come to the end, chapter 21 and 22, and once again, there's a tree of life. And there's no more death or mourning or pain. Sin is dealt with. But in the middle, where we are today, there's sin and there's death and there's mourning and there's pain. But we understand, we read in Ephesians chapter 2, that the solution in Genesis 3.15, the solution to that sin has already been accomplished in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that if we have put our faith in Christ, we are people who are looking forward and anticipating that final redemption. And we as Christians, as people who, who say sin is not good, sin has brought death, we are looking to a God who brings life, should be a people who are pursuing that life. And that as long as we continue to to say, well, little sins, it's not such a big deal, as long as we still continue to tolerate the sins in our own lives, and to just be okay with them, and to say, "Eh, it's not, you know, it's just like everybody's doing it, Um, we are people who are then still participating in the world of death that Christ has worked to defeat. And if we have a picture, and if we can understand this picture that God has given us in Revelation of where the world is going and what he's seeking to accomplish in the world, then we as people here on earth in the midst between the trees are people who are, who are pursuing this life and who say these things of, of death and destruction that, that are happening, we don't want to participate in those practices. This is not part of who we are. This is not part of what we believe God is doing in the world. And so, uh, when we talk about sin, I want us to have not so much a, uh, here's, here's, the, here's what we need to deal with today, but I want us to have a picture of where God is moving and to understand that we too should be people moving that direction. And oftentimes we're too satisfied with our own uh, way of doing things. We, say, we, we listen to the words of the serpent that say, oh, you're not going to really die. That sin's not going to kill you. That, that one doesn't bring death into our world. That one doesn't bring heartache and pain. It's not such a big deal. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus is speaking, and he says, uh, says this, these words. This is one of my favorite verses. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full when we talk about sin, we have to have this understanding that, that the work of Satan in our world, and the work of sin in our world, all sin, not, not just big sins, but all sin, what it does is it, it steals the life that God has for us. It destroys and it kills. We have to understand that from Genesis chapter 3 sin brings death from god's perspective sin always brings death and from god's perspective obedience brings life and so we we have this framework that that what happens when we sin is destruction that that the our enemy wants nothing more than our total and utter destruction and that sin is his means by which he accomplishes this Uh, pushing us towards disobedience and yet jesus responds i have come that they may have life and have it to the full and this is the picture we see in revelation 21 and 22 this is what god is doing giving life and life to the full And I think this is important for us to think about it in this category because oftentimes when we have a conversation around sin, what happens is is we articulate it in a way that Christianity just becomes another list of of do these things and don't do these things. And that at some point God sat back and said, okay, uh, I don't want you to do this, 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 this. And... Uh, maybe he had good reasons for some of it, maybe he didn't, but he gave us that list of don't do these things, here are the things you're supposed to do, and, and now go. And we have this, we, we talk about this, and we, and we uh, are resentful sometimes of the things that we can't do because God has said it's sin. Or we're resentful sometimes of the things that we have to do because God says that's what it means to obey. But it's not about God just saying, hey, I don't want you to do those things. It's a matter of these things are destructive. These things bring death. And this is the way that the world works. And God says, hey, I'm not about death, I'm about life. And so don't do the things that keep bringing death into the world. Be doing the things that bring life into the world. Paul says in Philippians 4, you don't have to turn there. Uh, Philippians 4, he tells the the church in Philippi, says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. He says, be focused on the things that are life-giving and good and praiseworthy. Let these things consume your thoughts and be be the meditation of your hearts. Be moving in this direction. We're moving towards the final picture of redemption. And so be focused on the things that lead towards redemption, not on the things that hold you back towards death. Be focused towards the things that bring life. He says that that which is not life-giving... Those things that continue to destroy and distort the good in our world, these things have no place within the Christian community. Because we are people of life, not of death. And so we have to have this this theological perspective around sin and around what God is doing in the world and where the story is going. That says as we interact with our world, as we as we move through our days, as we have conversations with our coworkers, as we as we log on to Facebook, as we uh, engage in the political process, in whatever we do, that we have an understanding that for God, the reconciliation of men and women to Him is primary. And we can't be people who tolerate death in those conversations. We can't be people who choose to participate in those conversations and par- choose to participate in those actions that say, well, you know, in our in our system and, and the way the world works, like, this is just the way it is, and so I'm going to choose to take this side on this issue, even though it may be a little bit siding with... Uh, with hatefulness or or idolatry. But in the grand scheme of, of my perspective, it still seems like it might be good. No, we have to have a perspective of is this accomplishing God's work of reconciliation with men and women to God? And are we pursuing those things that are good in those conversations? Are we interacting with our neighbors who we disagree with in ways that demonstrate That God loves them. And that God's first word to them is not judgment of their sin, but grace. Do they hear that from us? Oftentimes the enemy of this hope that we have of where the story is going, the enemy of, of our hope is the acceptance that this present life That the way that we see the world today is the true reality. And that this is the way things are going to be. And so we accept the lie that this is just the world we live in, so we have to play by this world's rules. The story of Scripture says that that the way that we see the world today is not actually the way things really are and are meant to be. And so we pursue righteousness, Not because it's just an arbitrary list of rules, but because we see where the story is going and we pursue wholeheartedly this life that God has given us. We say this reality is not the reality that God desires. And we are going to live and chase after the reality that God does desire. We become people of hope when we are straining after the future. We have a picture of what God is doing and we strain after that. We make every effort to accomplish that and to live that in our own world. In the midst of our present suffering, in the midst of the death that's all around us, we are people of hope who say that this is not the way it has to be. And we know that God is doing a work and we are going to participate in that work today looking forward to the day of redemption. finally Ephesians chapter 5 Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 15 he says be very careful then how you live not as unwise but as wise out of reverence for Christ, Paul has this has this phrase here. Uh, my translation says, "Making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil." The, the word there actually, there's two words there that actually have the connotation of redeeming the time. And and I love that phrase, redeeming the time. Because, because I think it gives us a picture of what we're talking about here when we talk about sin. He says, live, live wisely and, and be about bringing about redemption into the time that God has placed you. We are people that have a picture of what redemption looks like. We've experienced redemption in our lives through Christ. And we have a picture of this, this final redemption of God. And we are to be people as Christians who are living out that redemption in the time that God has placed us. That we are people who, who our interactions are about redeeming the time towards that final picture, about bringing about healing and hope towards that picture, and that our conversations are moving towards that hope. He says, redeeming the time. Because the days are evil. We look at our world and we see the evil. And we see a God who says, this is not the way it's meant to be. And you, my church, are to be about bringing about redemption. Don't get distracted by the little things that steer you off course. Be about redemption. And I wanted to end with this verse because um, it brings us back actually to, to our Joshua story in Joshua chapter 7. Do you remember in Joshua chapter 7, God, it's, it's Achan who sins, right? And yet when God comes back to Joshua, he says, uh, what, stand up, why are you on your face? Israel has sinned. And God's perspective is, is that it's not just Achan's sin, but it's the whole nation that's held accountable. And there's a there's a sense of corporate responsibility for the nation. And I, and I want us to take a look back at uh at this Ephesians passage. In Ephesians chapter five, Paul is saying he gives he tells them to redeem the time, but then he says this, in verse 18 again. Uh do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it's really easy as we, as a church, it's easy to hear this conversation about sin and to really think to to focus on us as individuals and in fact I encourage you to do that at the beginning to not be thinking about what other people need to hear but what do you how do you need to be challenged but at the same time Paul frames this conversation and Paul frames this discussion when he's talking to this church in Ephesus not about hey you do this as individuals but there's a plural here And then the response is that as you are speaking to one another through your songs and your hymns and your spiritual songs, that you are actually speaking the words of God and challenging the sins that are in the midst of your community. That there is also a corporate responsibility that we have as the body of Christ, the large church, but also as Berean Bible Church. To say we as a church. Are going to be people of redemption. And when we are having conversations. With our fellow brothers and sisters. And we hear them speaking words. Of hate. uh, That we as as a church. Have a responsibility to say. Hey. That is not moving us towards redemption. That is not. The things that God has for us as a church. When we see uh, people interacting with one another, or we're aware of people participating in actions that are bringing death, that we as a church have a responsibility to one another to, in love, say, hey, this isn't what we're about, this isn't what we're doing here. That we have a corporate responsibility. This is not each of us alone working towards redeeming the time, but it is all of us together. Uh, Because we know the days are evil, but we also know what God has called us to, and we know what God is doing. And we as a church have a picture of where this story is going. And we as a church want to be living that out here, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools. In our homes, we are confronting the sin and dealing with it. Joshua has this phrase uh, we talked about in our Sunday school class this morning. uh, when, When he's on his face before the Lord, he said, If only you had been content to leave us on the other side of the Jordan, if only we had just stayed there and we hadn't brought us over here to this promised land. Like We could have just been fine over there. There wouldn't have been any conflict. It wouldn't have been difficult. We wouldn't have had to deal with this. Uh, God, why couldn't you have just left well enough alone? <laughs> and I think oftentimes when we think about sin uh, and confronting the sins in our own lives and or in the, the sins of our community, sometimes we just want to say, God... Uh, you know, you saved us. Like, isn't that enough? Do you really want more from me? Like, have already already—I've already put my trust in you. Like, why do I have to continue trudging through and dealing with this this other sin in my life? Can I can I just ignore it? Uh, but I think that perspective, uh, again, loses the idea that that we are going somewhere. And that God was bringing the people into even more blessing, in more uh, joy and promise, and fulfilling the things and giving them good gifts. And Joshua's like, ah, this is too hard to deal with this sin in our community. Couldn't have just, like, you could have just left us alone. And sometimes I think we operate that, that ah, it's too hard to deal with. With this sin in my life, like I don't want to do the work of asking for forgiveness, and I don't want to do the hard work of of working through breaking this addiction, or I don't want to do the hard work of forgiving somebody else. can I just like can I just be good here? Can I just stop uh, But we have to have a picture of where the story is going, and God says, no, it's not enough to just stop and wait. We're working towards redemption. And to work towards redemption means to ask for forgiveness and to forgive. To work towards redemption is to fight through those battles together. To work through this sin so that we can be people who, through our actions, through our conversations, are people who bring life to the world that we see that we can be people who say, yes, the days are evil, but we are about redemption. And the more we deal with our sins, the more we are freed to live lives of redemption in our world. C.S. Lewis, and I'll end with this, Um, one of my favorite quotes from him, he says, uh, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And when it comes to dealing with our sin, often we are far too easily pleased. We say, that, that's enough, God. I want to deal with those ones. But God is calling us towards a world of life where there's no more pain or mourning, and we are people moving that direction. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, have opened your word this morning and we've looked at this, uh, this calling that you've given us and this, this work that you have already begun in our world, and are doing through us as Christians. Uh, We ask uh, first and foremost that we may continually be reminded, even as we uh, wrestle through our own sins, uh, may we first and foremost hear your words of grace. Uh, But we also ask that we may be people of redemption, that you give us the courage to confront the sins and the hatefulness and the idolatry, and the greed in our own lives so that we may be more fully people who pursue after those things that are good and noble and true and right. And may our world see this righteousness coming from us so that they may see you, the God of grace and goodness pray this in your name amen may you uh, have that picture for the future may you strain in hope uh, towards the life that god is calling us to and as paul says once again uh, may you then be careful how you live not as unwise but as wise redeeming the time because the days are evil